are entering the Freedom Hut. Sanctacomi was a liar and a fraud all along. The Inspector General report on James Comey has dropped. And guess what? He broke a lot of rules. He lied about what went on. And he just barely avoids prosecution. What does this tell us about the deep state, the anti-Trumpers, and all the rest? We'll get into that. Plus, General Mattis has some words about President Trump. We'll discuss coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. The report itself is still very damning for the former FBI director. It goes on to say that James Comey violated FBI policies in the way he handled, retained, and disseminated this memos. It says that Comey set a dangerous example for other members of the FBI. And it points out that, you know, he even had these conversations with President Trump about how important it is to keep investigatory details secret, to not share information with the press. And then essentially says, you know, he was a hypocrite for turning around and doing the same thing himself. It also includes a couple of uh, select quotes from interviews they did with Comey's advisors, where Comey's advisors are telling the IG that they were stunned, they were shocked. It was disappointment to see that this is how Comey had acted. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. IG report on Comey. Remember, there's still more to come with the Russia collusion delusion led to the Mueller probe and the conduct of the FBI during the Mueller probe. But we know who James Comey is. If you listen to the show, you know who he is. We call him Sancta Comey, a play on, of course, his name and Sanctimony, because he is exactly that. He's someone with a very high self-regard, someone who has inserted himself as a government civil servant, not an elected official, um, at critical times in some of the most politically contentious moments in recent history. And all the while, there was this backstory. There, there was this, uh, this facade of Comey the incorruptible. Comey could not be pushed. He could not be bought. He could not be cajoled. He could not be persuaded, all this stuff. And it turns out that he is, first and foremost, a Comeyist. He believes that he knows better. The rules you see there for little people. Comey has a different approach. What did we really find out in this Inspector General report? Well, for one thing, Comey broke FBI rules and regulations. He had to know he was breaking them and was just on the very edge of sharing classified information, what bailed him out is that the lawyer that he sent classified information to happened to maintain a clearance. Um, and I suppose the way that he sent the information did not violate, meaning the, the way the information transited. I, I'm guessing he did it over the Internet. I think that's what it said in the report. I read the report first thing this morning. Uh, he, It wasn't of such a high sensitivity that That was going to be a a criminal issue for Comey. Um, Now, though, we look at the seven memos and we see that there is no question 
that James Comey used the office of the FBI director to wage a personal vendetta against the president of the United States. Comey's feelings were hurt. Comey was mad that he got fired. And there were so many reasons to fire Comey. That's why you have to remember this this self-righteousness that he walks around with all the time and the way that he's just completely lacking in self-awareness. I mean, just the weird photos he takes of himself staring out over lakes and everything else and the way that he speaks to everybody like he's just I'm just here to just be the honest guy. You know, I didn't I didn't mean to to get my nose all in the midst of all this political stuff. I'm just trying to do my job at the FBI. Sure you are, Comey. Sure you are. That's why he broke protocol, as came up in the last Inspector General report, by stepping forward and speaking about the Hillary Clinton email investigation, which was just flatly not his job, not his role. But he did it anyway. Why? Because he thought it was best. And then Comey wrote these memos down. And at one point, he made seven memos of different meetings with the president. But let's let's break that down for a moment. The memos aren't a true recitation of exactly what was said at the meeting. This is, by the way, an old I was going to say this is an old FBI agent trick. They get to write whatever they want to write about what you are saying, which is why any good defense attorney will tell you that if you're going to sit down for uh, questioning with the FBI, first of all, always have an attorney present. Always. What is one? If I can teach you nothing else from listening to this show, it is don't talk to the FBI. And if you're going to talk to them, you have to have an attorney present. Right? That's if, if you take that away from this, I may save you. Uh, a, a criminal federal indictment at some point in the future that you just get jammed up in because you think you're just being a good citizen and a helpful person, so you decide to sit and talk to the FBI. Oh, like General Flynn. Don't think that they're going to give you the benefit of that. And we'll get into this, too, about the elites and what rules apply to us and what, what rules don't. Rules don't apply to them. Very strict on all the rest of us. They, they can get away. Comey can get away with whatever. Uh, we'll see. I think McCabe is going to get away, too, but that we'll get to that. So Comey makes these memos, which are just what he decides to say or write down was said in the meeting. And then that's the oh, that's the contemporary uh, contemporaneous record. That's all you have to go on. That's all you need to know. That is the record from that meeting. Well, hold on a second. Why would James Comey then as FBI director? Take some of the of the seven memos. There were at least three that had information that was classified. Now, he was a classification authority. And he determines what the classifications were on those memos. Some of them he handled as though they were classified. Some of them he said, look, Comey is slick. But he couldn't help it with his ego this time around. Now he went too far. But he was smart enough not to put himself in overt and egregious criminal jeopardy the way that Andy McCabe did. I mean, if they let McCabe go without charges, that's just because he's FBI and they don't want to charge a guy who was very senior in the FBI with a crime. That's all that is. It's a decision they're making because he's McCabe. Comey was smoother. 
He broke FBI rules. He would have been fired if he tried to stay around as FBI director. What he did was unethical. Why would he do it in the first place, though? I mean, I'll get into the violation. The violations are pretty obvious. He's taking work product home with him and keeping it as though it is his personal property. He locked it in a safe at home. Why would you do that? Unless you were plotting something. Well, as we know, he was plotting something. He was scheming in this whole process. And he went after the president of the United States. That was the plot. And he managed to get his way, the Mueller probe. He even said openly on the record that the whole point of what he was doing was to get a special counsel appointed. That's what he wanted from the process, and he managed to do it. James Comey is smart enough and has been a player in this D.C.-centric world long enough to know that taking home notes of meetings with the President of the United States is just wildly inappropriate. Why would he do that? Under, he said that he thought that they were his private. So basically, Comey decides that this is unclassified information. It's for official use only. It's the acronym they'll use. F-O-U-O. And he, just, and he takes it home with him. Just to keep? Because why, why would anyone do that? And there's so much that comes from this. So, much, so many ramifications. One is... How can anyone trust that they can have a conversation in the Oval Office with a member of the intelligence community now or somebody at the top of uh, federal law enforcement and not think that maybe they're creating a little oppo file on the president of the United States that they're going to release to the press at any point in time? The inspector general report made clear what Comey did violated FBI regulations. It was unacceptable. He broke the very codes, the very rules that as an FBI director, he was sworn to uphold. And if you asked him why he did this, well, of course, it's because Trump is a clear and present danger, he would say to America. So he, he got a special counsel started. When we know that Comey should have been fired long before any of these seven memorialized meetings from January of 2017 all the way up to. When he was finally fired. Another thing that jumps out when you read this. I was in the intelligence community. I briefed the president of the United States a couple of times. Ran those Oval Office briefings for the intelligence community. I was the guy in the Oval explaining to the president some of the more important issues of the day. Why on earth would the FBI director think that it was a good idea and it was appropriate to have a one-on-one, a a personal meeting with the president of the United States to present him with something that was the equivalent of online gossip. And how are we really supposed to believe that Comey or one of his close allies, Clapper or somebody of that sort, didn't leak the information when CNN was reporting on it the next day? They they told the press that they were briefing the president on this dossier that they had had for months so that they could make a news story out of it and then have an excuse 
to push the dossier itself as though it was true. This is the, well, I can't verify this, but I'm going to report on someone else reporting on it routine. Comey knew exactly what he was doing. How does it help the president of the United States to be told that there is a crazy rumor mill of lies out there? Would it have been useful for somebody to have briefed Obama on what the birther conspiracies on the Internet were? Should the FBI director have sat down and say, hey, I saw, you know, there's some people that are saying this stuff about you. Of course not. It's absurd. But guess what? They decided to brief the president of the United States on a dossier that is a collection of lies paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign, taken from Russian subsources who were most likely running a disinformation campaign against the United States anyway. And then laundered it through CNN. And Comey did all of this knowingly and willfully and was willing to break FBI rules and regulations in the process. If he had not already been fired, he would be fired now. What James Comey did, don't believe he's now claiming he's vindicated. Why? Because he's not going to be a felon. What James Comey did was wrong. He abused the power of his office. He betrayed the trust of his president. He can't walk around as FBI director and say, not my president. It was his president. The commander in chief, of the United States military and the top law enforcement officer in the United States government is, in fact, the president of the United States. And he betrayed him. Out of. Personal spite. And we were told that Comey was beyond reproach by the media. For as long as they could get away with it. Just like we were told that Mueller was the ultimate FBI guy until we saw him give that press conference and realized, oh my gosh, he and Biden need some time out together. When we talk about a deep state, a a conspiracy, an effort at the top reaches of the federal bureaucracy and in conjunction with the Democratic Party, to undo the results of the 2016 election. How can we not put what we've learned about James Comey right at the very top of that list? He was FBI director. He used used Russian disinformation paid for by the Clinton campaign as an excuse to create a news story that would embarrass the president of the United States. And then he refused to say publicly That the president himself was not a target of a federal investigation into treasonous activity, even though he told the president he was not. James Comey is all about the rules until the rules get in the way. He's all about by the book until he wants to write a different book. And now we know. We know we've been lied to. We know that he abused his power. And we know that this is not an ethical person acting in the best interests of the country. James Comey was acting in his own best interests. And he was willing to degrade the very FBI that he claimed to love so much as he was getting pushed out the door. We're just beginning to get into this, my friends. I have much more for you on the inspector general report. The, uh, 
what this tells us about our institutions, what this tells us about rule of law and justice in the DOJ, the prosecutorial arm, and what we can expect going forward. We've got much more. Stay with me. The president's tweeted innumerable times calling you a leaker. Well, what's your response to President Trump? Look, it's true. I mean, I'm the one who testified about it. That's how people know about it. I gave that unclassified memo to my friend and asked him to give it to a reporter. That is entirely appropriate. Why not do it yourself? Why not do it openly, transparently? For one very practical reason. At the end of my driveway was a horde of media. And my thought was, if I give it to one reporter, then what's my answer to all the others about why I won't answer their questions? So he's a liar or an idiot. I don't know. You can say either one because it was not entirely appropriate. The inspector general found that it was entirely inappropriate. This guy was the FBI director, folks. A lifelong prosecutor. That's really what he was. Remember, that? he's not really an FBI agent. You got He's not law enforcement in that sense. He was a prosecutor. And his close buddy, Patrick Fitzgerald, another prosecutor who's also a lawyer who received some of these documents for him, was the headhunter who, for political reasons, went after Scooter Libby. Oh, wow. It's, it's almost like some of these very prominent pro-Hillary prosecutors decide that they're going to get some people because they want to even the score with the other side. I mean, you know, Comey is one of these guys that loves to go around telling everybody about how he would never break any rules. And he was even saying, do we think that he didn't know? I mean, I was in the CIA. I would never, as a little nobody analyst, ever have taken notes from a a meeting inside Langley, taken it home and put it in my safe because I thought I should have it. This is what this guy did. People would have thought I was insane. I mean, I would have been I would have been fired. I would have been stripped of my clearance. He acts like this was normal. Yeah, it was totally appropriate. No, it's only appropriate in the sense that Comey believes that he is a great historical figure and that he is the anti-Trump and going to save the country. And there'll be history books written about how James Comey was you know, more honorable than George Washington himself. Well, the problem is the inspector general report came out and said, actually, you're a jerk, Comey. And you broke a lot of rules. A couple years back, you gave a speech saying, if we fall in love with our own virtue, we can go sideways. At any point over the last two years, did you fall prey to that? Did you fall in love with your own virtue? I don't think so, but I worried about it constantly. And the guardrail for that, because that's a big worry I have about myself, was to surround myself with people who will hit that hit at the certainty hit at the pride to make sure i've thought about things well i'm going to teach i'm going to travel around and speak about leadership but i want to offer them a vision of here's what it should look like values matter this president does not reflect the values of this country for a normal person the answer to the question did you ever fall in love with your own virtue would be no for james comey it's Yes, I'm very introspective about that. I was always so, so concerned with it. That was always a risk, a worry. When quite clearly, James Comey did fall in love with his own virtue. Did decide that he knew better than the rules. The rules that he would have expected every FBI agent below him, every person working in federal law enforcement to follow, he no longer had to follow them. And just in case there's any any doubt about this when you look at the inspector general report that came out today the con- the c- 
conclusions at the closing. They talk about things like, quote, Comey's improper disclosure of memos, memos two, four, six and seven to his attorneys. Here's what they write. Comey told the OIG that he shared copies of memos two, four, six and seven with his attorneys to obtain legal representation in connection with his removal as FBI director and any post-removal legal issues that might arise. However, Comey was not authorized to provide these memos to his attorneys without prior approval from or coordination with the FBI. Goes on here. This is under Appendix C, page 62. Comey failed to immediately alert the FBI to the unauthorized disclosure of classified information. On June 7, 2017, Comey learned of the FBI's classification decision regarding Memo 2 when the FBI allowed him to review copies of all seven memos with classification banners and markings in preparation for his June 8, 2017 congressional testimony. Once he knew that the FBI had classified portions of Memo 2, Comey failed to immediately notify the FBI that he had previously given Memo 2 to his attorneys. And it just goes on. I mean, this is a guy... And this is the, let me just give you the, the, the closing paragraph of this whole IG report, really put it into perspective. We have previously faulted Comey for acting unilaterally and inconsistently with department policy. Comey's unauthorized disclosure of sensitive law enforcement information about the Flynn investigation merits similar criticism. In a country built on the rule of law, it is of utmost importance that all FBI employees adhere to department and FBI policies particularly when confronted by what appear to be extraordinary circumstances or compelling personal convictions. Comey had several other lawful options available to him to advocate for the appointment of a special counsel, which he told us was his goal in making the disclosure. What was not permitted was the unauthorized disclosure of sensitive investigation information obtained during the course of FBI employment in order to achieve a personally desired outcome. The OIG has provided this report to the FBI and the Department of Justice Office of Professional Responsibility for action they deem appropriate. My friends, Comey told us all along that he did everything exactly the way that he should have. That it was all fine. That he was proud of how he acted in this whole process. He was the FBI director. He didn't know. You don't take memos home with you just because you feel like it. And now we get into the broader question. Do the rules in this country apply to those who are in power? Do the rules apply to those who hold what are considered the correct beliefs within the institutions that wield that power. And the correct beliefs are always left of center. I, depending on the institution, it might be a little bit to the left. It might, but the federal bureaucracy is an organ of the institutional left and the Democratic Party in this country. There are a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives who work in the federal bureaucracy. They don't run it. They aren't the ones who will call out for Hatch Act investigations and decide that somebody needs to be punished as a warning to the others. Overwhelmingly, it is, a, it is the case that bureaucrats are Democrats. And the bureaucrats that want to wield power for political purposes have leftist leanings. We have been told so much in the era of Trump 
that the big threat we really face is the possibility of the erosion of public trust in our institutions. And they keep telling us that Trump is the one who erodes all that trust. Let's look at the scoreboard. Was it Trump's fault that Comey and the FBI decided to break protocol and give an unbelievably favorable decision to Hillary Clinton about prosecution for misuse of classified information? Was, was, that, was that Trump's fault? Is it Trump's fault that it is very likely, as I have been telling you, that Andy McCabe is, despite lying, they know he lied, they know why he lied, and they got him multiple times lying with criminal jeopardy attached to such, uh, such falsehoods. Are we going to be surprised when they decide to just give a, a really mean letter to McCabe instead of criminal prosecution? Look at what other people get sent away for. Look at what they will bring charges for. They sent 30 guys in to Roger Stone's house in tack gear with long guns because they say that he lied about a communication that was legal over email or over tech or over Twitter or something. He lied about something that isn't important and they made it look like they were going after bin Laden. Oh, but, oh, but, but if you lie, you undermine the very system of justice. If you lie, you do an affront to the United States government. Okay. But what about McCabe? Why should he skate? And I know that he might not. I might have to come back in there and say, wow, I'm surprised they actually are bringing charges. But I bet money they won't. They're not bringing charges against Comey. He's already out of the FBI. But we were told all along that the, the big problem would be that we would lose faith in these institutions. I'm here to tell you that the problem that I see is that we have too much faith in some of these institutions. We don't ask enough questions. We aren't willing to grapple with the, the increasingly obvious reality that these institutions have individuals at very senior positions who view the power that they are supposed to wield on behalf of the American people and the rule of law as an opportunity to fight for their team, to even the score for their side. This was the case with Sally Yates, with Andy McCabe, with Jim Comey, with Peter Strzok, with Lisa Page, with Jim Clapper, with John Brennan, all of them. They're not supposed to say, I'm the CIA director, I'm the FBI director, and therefore I'm going to break protocol, I'm going to break rules, maybe even laws. We'll find out one day who leaked the Flynn conversation. Somebody... Create, somebody committed a felony there, and it, and it wasn't some random guy who worked in the mailroom, I can assure you. Someone very high up the government food chain decided that they had an opportunity to take out one of the most despised Trump allies, and a very important one for the implementation of his policies, General Flynn, on national security side. And they broke the law. You know what I'm sure they would say? Whoever it is when they're caught, if they're caught, which I unfortunately think will not happen. I had to do it. Trump is a clear and present danger to this country. Well, what we really have evidence of is that the clear and present danger to this country are the people that think that they have 
a right that they take unto themselves to break the law, to break rules, to break protocol, to break trust. It should be for a government official like James Comey, a a, a sacred feeling to be in the Oval Office and advising and working with and speaking to the president of the United States. I don't care who the president is. Instead, James Comey is writing these memos and taking them home and creating a little oppo file. That's what this was, an opposition file. Compromat, the Russians would have called it. That's what the KGB would have said this was. Got to keep those documents handy. Not because there was anything illegal that he could have charged the president with, but because he wanted to spin a narrative. That's right, a narrative in the media to hurt the president politically. Who fired James Comey and was entirely justified in doing so. People have been prosecuted for much less. There was that sailor who was prosecuted for taking a photo of a classified area of a submarine. He should have known better, but the photo was deleted. No one ever saw it. I want to send him to prison for a year. Papadopoulos, under extreme pressure from Mueller's team of obviously anti-Trump zealots, either misremembered or told a minor lie about when he had a communication that wasn't illegal, that didn't mean anything, and they made him go to prison for two weeks, and now he's a convicted felon. I already talked about what they did to Roger Stone. Look at what happens. They wanted to ruin Scooter Libby. Comey's buddy, his lawyer, Fitzgerald, knew that Libby didn't leak any covert agent's name. He knew that Armitage accidentally, as the story goes, let it slip. And they decided to just put as many Bush officials through the ringer as possible. Why? Because they wanted to get one. And they figured they'd find somebody who had a, there was a fact discrepancy. There was an, an opening to say that a crime was committed. And they'd make the case. And Bush, because the Iraq war was in a moment of extreme unpopularity and political peril. And they wanted to take Scooter Libby, who was the president's national security advisor, and lock him up for a couple of years in federal prison. Take away his law license, convicted felon. For what? For what? Tell me who the Democrat is. Tell me who the person that the establishment, the establishment media, the Democrat establishment in politics. Find me one name of somebody who was treated roughly by the justice system. Who is actually anti-Trump. You can't. And I just sat here and ran through all these names of people that were not given any kind of leniency, no mercy, no, you know, do better next time. And in some cases, I think we're set up. I think General Flynn was set up. Sally Yates created a completely pretextual, nonsensical excuse to send some FBI agents in to talk to him about a conversation that he was completely within his rights to have. And then... In order to make this a big scandal, the information was leaked about the conversation to the press. And now we know they're able to take out General Flynn. This is how the other side plays the game. We've seen it now. James Comey's a fraud. 
He's pretended all along to be a just-by-the-book guy, and he has done so many things in exactly the opposite manner. He has chosen to take his own judgment in lieu of the law, and that is a betrayal of the very justice system that he claims to have served for so many decades. It's not up to James Comey to think, oh, I can do this even though the regs say otherwise. It's not up to James Comey to decide that the election in 2016 shouldn't count, should be undone. That's what he did. That was his decision making. He's not really going to be held to account for, but just remember how many times you have been lied to about all of these anti-Trump government figures who I would note were tied to the Obama administration. We don't hear enough about that. We should hear substantially more. And I still want to know, in this whole process, what did Obama know? What did Obama know when the FBI director was going to stand in front of the American people and decide that Hillary Clinton wouldn't face charges, which was not his job? What did Obama know when James Comey was going home uh, putting these memos in his own personal safe in preparation for what was going to be a public media-enabled anti-Trump propaganda campaign. If you're James Comey, you don't think you're going to want a powerful ally on your side? You don't think you're going to tell anybody else about this? Well, he certainly told his lawyers about it. Uh, you know, that, that he was planning to go after the president in some way before and then after the president's, right? These, these meetings occurred in January of 2017. What did Obama know in October of 2016 about what Comey's thoughts were about Trump? Are we to assume that Comey just went anti-Trump later on in the process? I don't buy it. All right, we've got more. I'll be right back. No doubt in my mind, but that doesn't mean I'm against review of it. That's totally fine. So you think the inspector general will find nothing inappropriate? I don't think so. At least not that I know of. But if they do, they do. And they should be transparent about it. Again, I'm a big believer in the truth. If the truth is there was something concerning, then let's hear it. I don't know of anything like that. Well, there was a lot concerning, and now we know. There was inappropriate behavior, improper behavior, unethical behavior from James Comey. Another another time here where we have to find out eventually that someone who's a great resistance anti-Trump hero is a fraud and a fake and not who he pretended to be. Hmm. Maybe maybe there's a lesson in that. Maybe we should uh, keep that in mind going forward. <sighs> By the way, there was a video I saw today of Fox News talking about video from the uh, from a 2005 police raid of Jeffrey Epstein's Palm Beach mansion and the home was just strewn decorated all over the place with images of what were described as naked young women all over this home i am curious did the people that visited this home not think that was a bit weird or we're to believe you know all these people that spent this time with epstein tell us they didn't know anything weird was going on this guy has Naked young women adorning his home on the walls. No, no one thought that there was something up here? H- how many of you would, would go over and hang out at someone's home if they had pictures of young naked girls all over the place? I think the answer is zero. 
I'm going to stay on this Epstein case. I'll be back. Last night on this show, I discussed information that wasn't ready for reporting. I repeated statements. A single source told me about the president's finances and loan documents with Deutsche Bank saying, if true, as I discussed the information, was simply not good enough. I did not go through the rigorous verification and standards process here at MSNBC before repeating what I heard from my source. Had it gone through that process, I would not have been permitted to report it. I should not have said it on air or posted it on Twitter. I was wrong to do so. This afternoon, attorneys for the president sent us a letter asserting the story is false. They also demanded a retraction. Tonight, we are retracting the story. We don't know whether the information is inaccurate, but the fact is we do know it wasn't ready for broadcast. And for that, I apologize. All right. Close, but no cigar here from Lawrence O'Donnell. Close to what he should do. They've retracted the story, obviously. Right? I mean, you know, if, if they're going to not retract a story that's so blatantly flimsy in its sourcing, not up to standards, not up to par, then we all know that the whole thing's a joke. But the problem is CNN and, and MSNBC, they've been doing this time and time again. And at some point, as I mentioned to you yesterday, the retraction's not enough. At some point, it's it's not enough to just say, oh, well, we'll, we'll do better next time. If you keep on producing anti-Trump stories that are not, in fact, accurate, people are going to question your objectivity. And in the case of these major news networks, they shouldn't question it. They should know that it's not there. There is there is no objectivity. But I, I like this this standard. This reminds me of the the post Mueller investigation delusion that so many on the left have where they'll say, OK, well, just because. You know, we, we just because we couldn't prove that that Trump colluded with Russia, it doesn't mean that he didn't collude with Russia. Right. Just because we weren't able to get him with the Mueller probe doesn't mean that Congress doesn't have a role now in trying to you know, figure this out, find find out what exactly the collusion was. And, you know, essentially, you know, you can't you can't prove that I can't prove it. That's what they're saying. You can't find a way. To make this thing, um, you know, you, you can't find a way to make this impossible to be true. And so if you can't make it impossible to be true, then the standard will be, all right, we're going to pretend like maybe it could be true. Horrible, horrible stuff. But this is what they do. This is how the left, how the left wing media does their business these days. Um, now I want to just switch gears for a moment here to uh, Mattis. And, you know, I don't know General Mattis. There's some people that wore the uniform and, and had three or four stars on their shoulder that I that I came across professionally when I was in the CIA and sat in briefings with them, got a sense of who they were, what they knew, you know, how, how on top of their game they were at any given time. I never met Mattis. I didn't know him. But I, I do find this a, a little bit... Uh, a little bit disappointing. Now he's allowed to speak out against the commander in chief. He's a private citizen now. That's fine, and I don't. And it goes without saying. I think you all listening to the show know this. Uh, I've, I, I do have a, a deep and and, a, and real a, a tremendous respect for the United States military for people who serve. Uh, I was up close 
and personal with that service as a CIA analyst deploying, uh, deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan. There were many, many times where I trusted my life to men and women in uniform in the war zones, trusted my safety to them, you know, flying around in Blackhawks, you know, driving around in, in Humvees. And it was that was uh, something you don't ever forget. Right. And, you know, I I was in a position to defend myself, but I was relying on them to be the first line of defense and then some. Always. So it's with that said that th- that doesn't mean that I can't disagree with Mattis on something. Right? You know, just because someone served that I think that this also you see this a lot with people when they will talk about the McCain, John McCain's political record. They'll say, oh, but his service to his country. I've, I would never criticize service to his country. And I I did not approve of or, or think it was uh, OK when when Trump went after service. I didn't like that. But I also think it's not fair that because John McCain served, uh, when you're speaking about his political record and decisions he made, you can't criticize him. I, I think that's wrong. I think there are a lot of people who serve, and if we can't criticize their politics, separate from their service, obviously no one's criticizing anyone's military service. If you can't criticize their politics, then where does that stop and start? What, what are the outer limits of that new approach to all these things? And it's with that that I see that you've got Mattis going around now. He's got a book, Call Sign Chaos, Learning to Lead. And look, I think, you know, Mattis, I don't know him. And so some of you listen, maybe work with him, know him much better than I do. I'm always a little suspicious. I, I was always suspicious of Petraeus just because I knew, and that I knew more firsthand, uh, that he was cultivating a reputation for himself and had aspirations in politics and you know, Mattis is not shy about liking the media, liking the press, and liking the spotlight. I think that's that's been fair to say. Um, and, you know, he's out there now giving interviews in, in support of this book, and he's talking about things like he gave an interview to The Atlantic where he said, quote, uh, the next day, this is about meeting a uh, meeting with Trump in the Oval Office, and he says this is what happened. The next day... With Trump in the Oval Office, Mattis made his case for keeping troops in Syria. Trump rejected his arguments. 30 minutes into the conversation, Mattis told the president, you're going to have to get the next secretary of defense to lose to ISIS. I'm not going to do it. He handed Trump his resignation letter, a letter that would soon become one of the most famous documents of the Trump presidency so far. Um, Mattis's interview also touched on things like, quote, he found the president to be of limited cognitive ability and of generally dubious character, end quote. Mattis declined to directly criticize the president for the most part, citing a duty of silence he owed the administration. He warned this will not be permanent, saying, quote, there is a period in which I owe my silence. It's not eternal. It's not going to be forever. Well, he's not being silent right now, so I don't, let's, that, that part of it for me was a little bit confusing. Um, he's not being silent right now, and... To say, you know, to say that the president's of generally dubious character and limited cognitive ability. First of all, we're all of limited cognitive ability. So I'm not sure that's a particularly descriptive. That, that's a, a backhanded way of saying he thinks that Trump is stupid. That's what he's saying. Or a, a more subtle way of saying he thinks that Trump is stupid. And I, I keep coming back to this. How exactly is... It's not just that Trump became president. He didn't have a dad. Look, Bush had a very different pathway to the presidency than, than Trump. Let's not... Let's not delude ourselves. All right. Plenty of people have had very different uh, steps up in politics as as a result of a family name or, you know, Trump did this on his own and he beat the Clinton machine with all the media behind it. It's a remarkable feat. We're really to believe that Trump is stupid. 
I'm not, he's not he's not bookish. He's not an intellectual. But we're going to believe that. I'm sorry. I, I reject that the president is stupid. I do not think that there's any. I don't think that's a reasonable position to hold. Uh, he's clearly politically gifted. He's a gifted communicator. He has instincts that are amazingly useful in politics as well as in business. You know what, what we would have called back in the day here in NYC street smarts. Trump's got street smarts. You know, and and that means a lot. And maybe having a presidency with street smarts is something that this country needed at this point. And I, and I don't want to have to go there, but I'm going to have to go there. You know, with Mattis, again, this is not about his military service. That was incredible. And we thank him for that. And he's a, he's an honorable warrior. Thank you, sir. But if we're talking about Mattis's ability to assess someone's character, he was one of the go-to defenders, and this is a matter of public record, folks, one of the go-to defenders of Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes's character at times when people were really questioning whether Theranos, this blood testing company that was that raised $800 million from investors and had a multi-billion dollar valuation, it was a huge fraud. It was the investor equivalent of a Ponzi scheme. Elizabeth Holmes is a is a weirdo. I, that's a total weirdo who is playing people like a fiddle left and right. And Mattis was the person who was vouching, saying that he had looked into her soul and yada yada, and he vouched for her character. So does he really understand Trump? I don't know. I don't think so. And I I'm disappointed to see that at the current moment. He's coming out and and saying, oh, I won't really go after the president, but I'm going to kind of go after him when my book is out there. Mattis is a good man. I think he's making a mistake here. That's how I feel. This is his standard go to. This is what he knows is absolute red meat to his base. It's what gets them riled up and keeps them distracted from the fact that uh, more and more economists are telling us that we may be headed into a recession. Putting Donald Trump in the Oval Office is may well wreck the American economy. Uh, You know, these trade wars that he's engaging in with China are costing people jobs in Iowa and other places. So, yeah, I mean, this is his old standby. Castro, I hope, is the next the next candidate who's going to have to drop out, because while while I've made it very clear that Beto, in my opinion, is the worst um, Beto is the worst candidate of all the Democrats that are still out there. Uh, Castro is is certainly at the and now we don't have Gillibrand anymore. Makes me very sad. Now now we no longer have Gillibrand. Um, but I would it just makes me sad because it's been fun to make fun of her. I'm Gillibrand. You know she was really, really like the she was like the peppy ex wife that you just never wanted to hear from again. <laughs> I'm Gillibrand. Um, yeah, it was a lot of lecturing from her and not, not a good thing. Um, it's, she's a little bit like a young version of Hillary. I got it. That, that's the way I think of her voice. So that's kind of, instead of hello, it's a little more like, hello, you know, it's like a little less old and old and crusty in the voice, but it's still there. There's still the same, same shrill, annoying entitlement. That is uh, that is the case with Hillary is the case with uh, Gillibrand. I got to tell you, I was thinking for a long time. I was of the mind that Hillary would probably become the candidate 
um, eventually for the Democrats because they just she would do it. I mean, that's let, let's be clear about this. Hillary would definitely sign on. Um, I believe that Hillary was willing to be the consensus candidate because ultimately the only way uh, the only way that you can set right in the liberal mind what went wrong in the 2016 election would be to have a redo and a redo in which Hillary won. It's the only way. The only way you could do it, right? But it looks like that's not going to happen. That's a little bit frustrating. Okay, fine. But now we, we see one of the storylines that are coming with here is that the economy is going to tank because of Trump. Now, they tried this. And speaking of a redo of the election, this is what Castro was saying. If Trump is president, the economy will tank. Meanwhile, Trump has been president and the economy has not been tanking. In fact, quite the opposite. The economy has been strong. It has been going very, very well. So in what world, in in what universe does it make any sense for the left to come out and claim that Trump is going to ruin the economy when he's already been in office, he's been the guy in charge, and things are going great? It's it's like, don't listen to me, you know, don't listen to what you hear, don't listen to your lying ears, listen to what I say. This seems to be the... uh, the pitch the Democrats have come up with, because there's a desperation. They know that absent a recession, there is a very high likelihood, just based on history, based on all the numbers, a very high likelihood that Trump gets reelected. Absent a recession, that's a very real thing. And so they're going to come up with some way. They're going to come up with some narrative in the meantime that, oh, there's not a recession yet, but just wait. Just wait. There will be a recession. It's coming. That's for sure. But, you know, believe them. That's what they're asking you. Oh, just get it now. Will this continue to work in six months? I don't know. But you're going to you're going to hear this up until Election Day. Now, what, what does Castro, by the way, what does he know about recessions or about anything else? The problem Democrats have is that they don't no, none of the candidates who sound like reasonable people can appeal to the left so they can't get out of the primary. And the person that's supposed to be, I mean, they'll say Castro's an open borders guy. Castro was the guy who not only wants to decriminalize illegal crossings of the border, which is completely insane. He also is the individual who wanted the, uh, (laughs) I mean, it's hard to believe. He's the one who wanted taxpayer-funded abortions for transgender individuals he was the one that went to that to that length uh recently which again is just absolutely nuts it's just nuts for him to say that but he said it and the democrats didn't really seem to have much of a problem with it they're of the belief that yeah sure you know he's probably a little bit out of bounds sometimes but that's where we are here with castro but they got biden biden's supposed to be the Return to normalcy. And yet this guy cannot go. First of all, they've tried to scale back his schedule. They've tried to scale back his schedule because they feel like later in the day he's more. This is real. This has been reported. I'm not, I'm not imagining this. They think that later in the day he is more likely to make gaffes because he's tired because he's too old. That's, they won't say that part of it, but that's what's really going on because he's too old. They don't. 
go beyond the uh, that explanation. They they won't say more than that. They'll just say, yeah, he wants to have he shouldn't have things later on the day. He wants to have them done earlier on because of that. And it's because every seems like about every two days now, Biden says something that is just a wow moment. Ooh, well, Biden's gone and done it again. Why aren't they sending into homes of economically distressed families, whether they're of color or otherwise? Why aren't we sending them to homes, social workers, who help the single mom or the single dad know what they should be doing in raising their children? No, yeah, that's right. He wants social workers going to teach them how to raise their children. I mean, that's what it sounded like to me. Do you think if uh, maybe you might even say, oh, but Buck, some people do need to learn more or there's some role of the state in trying to. OK, but do you think a Republican would ever get away with saying something like that? Biden is just a walking, talking political liability for the Democratic Party. And yet he's way ahead in the polls still. You have to sit back and ask yourself about half the country are Democrats at least by registration, right? I mean, I know people say, oh, Buck, no, there's more more conservatives, Republicans. Fine, whatever. It's it's close to half the country is registered Democrat, okay? Biden's the best they've got? This is who they're offering up to take on Trump? I, I think that they must know, they must know deep down that this is a, that his campaign is doomed to failure, but I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something. You know, there is this part of me that keeps thinking, Given what happened in 2016, perhaps we have to approach all politics from the mindset of anything is possible. Anything could happen, right? Biden, maybe, you know, Joe Biden just gets the job done. I don't think that's possible, but it, look, it's a it's a crazy world we live in. It really is. There's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. So who knows, folks? I'll keep an eye on it. That's for sure. We'll be right back. My friends, I want to tell you about the foie gras wars that is coming, yes? You may not have heard of this, but it is a real problem, my friends. The, uh, the foie gras may be banned here in the city called New York. You may not be able to purchase... Uh, now I'm serious. The problem with my French accent is it turns into a Russian accent sometimes. And I haven't even had anything to drink. If I had a little bit of vodka going, that would be an acceptable situation. But I have not... And so this is where we are. Um, New York City may ban, may follow in California's footsteps. California's already done this. California has banned plastic bags. They like to ban things. We're going to ban it. Uh, But they're looking to ban foie gras. For those who don't know, uh, foie gras is a delicacy. And it has been uh, somewhat controversial especially in animal rights activist circles for a while because the way and it can be either goose or duck foie gras i will tell you i prefer the duck but i will eat the goose foie gras i'll do either um, but the way that it works is they take this uh they t- let's talk about it with the duck foie gras because that's the best and hudson valley new york a place that i know very well my grandparents had a home up there for many many years um hudson valley new york is famous for its foie gras, right? It is a famous, uh, famous locale for uh, foie gras. And if it is, if it's banned, there, I think they said there's 15, I think they said 15, no, yeah, $15 million of foie gras is sold. I don't know if that was nationwide or just to New York every year, but it's, you know, it's, it's a real business. There's real 
money at stake. And for a lot of people, for a lot of farms, uh, this is a do or die situation. You know, um, yeah, last year, I'm sorry, Hudson Valley is this one this one uh, place founded in 1990 slaughters about 800 foie gras ducks every day. Last year, it sold about $15 million of foie gras to restaurants and distributors. Um, so that's just one place. Wow, I guess foie gras is a much bigger business than $15 million. Anyway, people like this fatty duck liver. That's what it is. They take the duck and they force feed it a high fat corn feed. They put a, it's just like a put a hose. It's like a thin hose they put in the duck's throat. And the, and the uh, liver of the duck turns a kind of translucent yellow and becomes about the size, they say, of a... It should be able to fit in the palm of your hand, a duck liver, but it becomes about the size of a, of a human brain over the course of this, this feeding process. So the liver gets very, very large and, and fatty. It's, it's, you know, fatty liver disease is a thing that people can suffer from, but this is like a fatty liver in the duck... The thing is, if you sear it properly and put like a uh, a cherry compote on it, it's delicious. Producer Mark, do you like foie gras? I don't really like liver. Nah, that's fair. Why am I telling you? This is not just so I can do a weird French accent and talk about foie gras because I'm hungry. This is going to lead to a whole lot more. If they get this banned through based solely on how this is inhumane, that is... The approach they're taking, they're saying that this is an inhumane thing. If they are successful in doing that, what's to stop them from saying that factory farm chickens are also raised and killed in an inhumane fashion? And uh, you're going to see more of this. You're going to see uh, these activists, these animal rights activists who are always politically left. I've never met an animal rights activist who wasn't also, you know, either a Hillary or a Bernie Sanders voter who probably drives a Prius. And there's usually a degree. And by the way, I, you know, I love animals. I love dogs particularly, but I love animals in general. But I also think that human beings are meant to eat animals. And I think that ultimately, you know, we don't want to be unnecessarily cruel ever. You don't want to inflict pain for the sake of pain ever. Um, but you do start getting into this this gray zone of, well, what is acceptable? You know, they, they've uh, banned for a long time. I forget what it's called, but a uh, small bird in brandy, uh, that, that was a delicacy for uh, ortolans. There we go. The ortolans. This was when they would take a little songbird and they would pluck out its eyes and drown the bird in Ar- armagnac. Uh, and marinate it in this this liqueur, and then it is roasted and then plucked. Yeah, and this goes back to ancient Rome. So people like like this this ortolan thing, and, it, and that's been outlawed for a while because of the cruelty. They're trying to get foie gras. It's outlawed in California. You can't get foie gras in California anymore. But I'm telling you, next is going to come the uh, factory farming is cruel, and there's going to be a real political movement on the left about this. And look at how they're, they're, they're coming after your food in a bunch of ways. They're coming after your food because they say the climate change footprint is too large. Uh, they're coming after your food because they're saying that uh, it's, it's cruel. It's essentially cruel and unusual punishment against animals. And they want to control more and more aspects of your life. 
I, I do think that also with the Beyond Meat success, and they have all these meat substitutes, we've talked a bit about this, you're going to see a greater push, because it's never going to taste as good. And all of you already know that. Your barbecue, your burger, that's just, it's just more delicious than whatever they can make in a test tube somewhere. We're no, we are nowhere close to creating meat substitutes that if someone is okay with eating meat, they would choose based on taste. And, I, and I'm willing to try it. I'm willing to try the different things. We are nowhere in the, in the stratosphere of that being the case. Uh, we are, in fact, going to be told that we have to eat this much less delicious stuff because it's better for the environment, or in this case, because they're so mean to animals. It's so mean to the animals. You know, if you're going to eat animals, there's going to be violence. There's going to be there's going to be the killing of the animal, unless you're going to you know go real caveman style and you know try to take a bite out of the animal while it's you know still flopping around on the boat or something. That's not a good idea. You know, I've, I heard a story from a fly fishing guide a long time ago who said that he went fishing with a bunch of Russians. And they like to, they would actually take the salmon and eat the roe. They would, the salmon would still be flopping around on the, on the shore, and they would essentially create a, an incision across the belly, or, or a, a, they'd slit the belly, and then they would eat salmon roe right out of the fish. Producer Mark, how much money would I have to pay you to have you do that? A lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's very, very salty. So if you like salty things, but. I don't like super salty stuff. So I'm telling you, they're gonna they're gonna come after. You're gonna see, and the movement is. They're I think they are gonna ban foie gras in New York, and then there'll be a a, a push to ban it in other cities across and other blue areas of the country for sure, where this is a delicacy that people actually eat, and it's going to affect people. Look, you're you're gonna have farms that'll go out of business. Hundreds of people lose their livelihoods because they think they're being a little a little rough with the the goose in the last thirty days of life. There are veterinarians who say this is cruel. There are veterinarians who say all factory farming is cruel. And there are some who say that, you know, this is the circle of life. So take your pick, folks. But I'm telling you, they're coming after your burger. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Uh... Look, it is the case that for a couple of decades, and this isn't political, this is Republican and Democrat administrations alike, for a couple of decades, uh, we allowed uh, China to run roughshod over American interests, as, as did Europe, uh, allowed China to run roughshod over their interests as well. President Trump has made clear that's not going to be the case anymore. It's, it's most prominent, that is, you see it in the uh, trade issues, where we're trying to simply get fair and reciprocal trade between the United States and China. Um, but I think you also see in all the other uh, components of the challenge that China presents, whether it's pushing back, as we've done here at the State Department, on the risk presented by uh, Chinese telecommunications infrastructure, Huawei and others, uh, the work that we've done to uh, convince our partners around the world that allowing China to make investments in their countries that will ultimately make them vassal states of China, uh, uh, along every dimension, political, diplomatic, and security um, we're pushing back to make sure that the American people are protected against the challenges that China presents to us. That is the essence. That's Secretary of State Pompeo laying it out for that is the essence of why Trump has been willing to take the position he has against China. That they have been bad actors on a number of fronts for a long time. And we've all finally just had enough of it. And so I, I think that has to 
be reiterated. We have to continue to hone in on that reality if we're going to assess whether or not it is the right move for President Trump to continue on with this battle with with China. Understand that any anyone who pays attention to geopolitics and is not a, a an internationalist cosmopolitanist type, if you ask them, does the Chinese uh, do the Chinese view our relationship with them at some level as zero sum? The answer has to be yes. Now, if you were to ask anybody if the Russians view the U.S.-China relationship, I mean, U.S. Uh, relationship as zero sum, everybody would say, well, of course, I mean, Putin, that's the way. What evidence is there at all that the Chinese take a different approach to their relationship with the United States, trading relationship, political relationship? You know, do we really think the Chinese, for example, have tried their best to help us on the North Korea issue? Do we really believe that the Chinese government is doing everything in its power to help with what is the one of the most important national security challenges in the world, which is the uh, preventing North Korea from becoming a true nuclear power that is able to hit any country anywhere in the world with an intercontinental ballistic missile. I mean, they already have nuclear weapons, which is a a somewhat terrifying thought in and of itself. The Chinese aren't putting undue pressure on them. In fact, the Chinese like the current relationship where we have to run to them and say, "Okay, come on, we need a little help here getting North Korea to fall in line. What what can you do for us? So that's another component of this. I mean, you see... Chinese action, not just on trade, but on national security and, and other um, issues. It's it's quite clear to me that they aren't helpful to there aren't they're not an ally. Right? This is what there is a a very clear strategic clash going on between us and them. They want to be the global hegemon. The Chinese people, the Chinese Communist Party have aspirations to be the wealthiest, strongest country in the world. And to be the wealthiest and strongest country in the world, if you're going to be an interconnected, uh, as we are, with you know, the Internet and transit on planes as simple as it is to get all over the place and a truly globalized economy, you're going to have to be influential outside of your borders in ways that we don't want. We simply don't want the Chinese to be. I mean, we do not want the spread of a one-state capitalist uh, or, or sort of a one-state quasi-capitalist authoritarian communist uh, Chinese party. We don't want that spread all over the world. We don't want that to become the new model for other countries. Now, you could say, oh, but China isn't trying to create China in the rest of the world. That's true to an, that's true to an extent, but it's also the case that the Chinese government, by being completely willing to work with any country irrespective of the nature of that regime, the way that regime interacts with other countries as well as its own people. It just means that, you know, imagine if the U.S. were to go bad and decide that we were going to be buddies with all the worst countries in the world. That would have that would have profound ramifications for the future of the earth. I mean, for all of us. And that's the the future we're headed for with China. So I, I think that there has to be a long term view of this. And I think that the president deserves a lot of credit. And I know that he's getting criticized right now by Mattis, who says that he has a lack of 
you know, cognitive ability. Essentially, I mean, Mattis more or less is saying the president's not smart. I think he's trying to do it in a very, well, not even very. He's trying to do it in a somewhat roundabout way. But that's what is going. That's what's going on here. Um, by the way, Mike Pompeo also spoke a bit about the Israel and Iran issue and how this administration is approaching that. With respect to the Islamic Republic of Iran, we flipped uh, we we flipped the uh, U.S. policy there. Uh, the previous administration guaranteed Iran a path to a nuclear weapons system, allowed them to foment terror, and allowed their missile system to run amok. President Trump has directed that we uh, do just the opposite and deny them the resources to create risk, not only for the United States and its citizens, but for Israel as well. And we've been successful with that. And we've also been incredibly supportive each time Israel has uh, been forced to take actions to defend itself. The United States has made very clear uh, that that country has not only the right, but the duty to protect its own people. And we are always supportive of their efforts to do that. And so with respect to uh, ensuring that uh, Israel is treated fairly at the United Nations, uh, Israel can certainly count on the United States of America. See, there's a fundamental difference in the way you have to think about the Iranian regime, the Iranian government and the Israeli government. And this is where the left is wrong. This is where the left loses it. That's what they don't understand. Uh, Or rather, they're just wrong. And maybe they understand they're just wrong. And that is that the Israeli regime, the, the government of the country of Israel is at its core a decent moral rule of law government. The government in Tehran, the mullahs, the guardian council, they are at their core and the government that they run is a an indecent, immoral, corrupt and evil regime. And everything that you think about when you when you're talking about the relationship between those countries and what's going on in their spheres of influence in the Middle East, it has to start from that context. In a very straightforward way, uh, the Iranian government are the bad guys, the Israeli government are the good guys. And conservatives are willing to put it in those those terms. For the left, it's, oh, there's always greater complexity, and they'll say there's greater complexity, and then all of their efforts at condemning, all, their, all the diplomatic pressure they can bring, that's always brought to bear against Israel. Right. That's where the U.N. and all these international bodies are always criticizing Israel as though it's the country we have to really be the most worried about. You know, that's the country that's really. And so this is where you you have even if Trump lacks the the more nuanced understanding out there that obviously libs think that he's a psycho and a a traitor and an idiot all at once. Right. Libs think all kind. He's Hitler. He's worse than Hitler. He's worse than Mao. He's. He's, you know, Satan himself, except at least Satan could tempt people in ways that were clever. They, they think that Trump is just boorish. But on the Israel versus Iran question, Trump is fundamentally right, just like on the China-U.S. relationship, he's fundamentally right. And we, we can't lose sight of that. So one of my favorite uh, things to complain about, and since this is my radio show, I'll take a moment to complain about something that is that is on my mind. It's just all the stuff. I, I just moved from D.C. to New York, and you have all this stuff you have to deal with when you move, which is very annoying. Moving is very expensive. It's very pricey. And, you know, you have to be quite aware of what's going on around you because there's always stuff that comes up. But then when you deal with apartments in New York City, you get the double whammy of 
it's very expensive. Wherever you live in New York City is very expensive. And those of you that are in this area know what I'm talking about. A lot of you, I know th- those of you who listen to the show out in Omaha, you're laughing at me. You've got, you know, your thousands of square feet or whatever, and you've got a yard and land and all this stuff. And you're telling me, Buck, I've got a very cute work shed that you could go throw a cot in and I'll only, I'll charge you, you know, bottom dollar for it. So I, I appreciate all that. But yeah, here in New York, it's very, very expensive. And wherever you end up living, there's always, there's always a risk. You know, there's always a risk because you go see the place, but until you have actually lived in a place, like sleep there for the slept, slept there, slept there, speak the English book for the night, uh, you don't really know what you're getting into. And I've dealt with this many times before. For example, years ago, I lived in a a tiny studio, a studio apartment. By the way, for those who don't know the lingo, a studio is a fancy term for a one-room apartment, which is what I have lived in for most of my adult life. Yeah, that's right. The Freedom Hut is, it's a hut. It's not, it is not a mansion. It is not a hacienda. One day, producer Mark will have a Freedom Hut hacienda. If we, if we go big, if we go big time. And we are in 160 stations, but when we get to 500, We'll get a hacienda and we'll get you, I don't know, what do you call the, like the, the carriage house for a hacienda? No I've never even heard of a hacienda. Espanol. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a big house, I think. Or it's a fancy house. So, so whenever you move into a place for the first time around, and I don't know how many of you, I've moved 10 times as an adult. I've moved over and over again. I had to move mostly because when I was in the CIA, they would raise my rent when I lived in D.C. And so I would say, uh, okay, and I was living right at the edge of, you know, paycheck to paycheck. So when somebody would raise my rent, even a couple of hundred bucks a month or 150 bucks a month, I'd have to move. So that happened to me a bunch of times in, in DC. But you know, you learn you, there's a growth process from that, from being somebody who has to just get it done and move and find a place to live and, and deal with the situation. Right? There, there's a lot that you have to, you have to handle there. Um, I mean, I, I packed, and in retrospect, some of you are going to say that. Well, first of all, some of you are superhuman. All right, so let's just start right there. Every time, every time I talk about something, I'm like, I'm working on my fitness. I get like eight members of Team Buck who are like, I just, I just competed in the IFBB championship, and like, look at me, and I've got like a 16 pack, and do this and that. And I appreciate the advice, but you know, I got to sit here behind a radio mic for three hours a day, and to do this show, I got to read for like four or five hours before I do the three hour show. So it's a long, it's a long haul. So when people ask the question, how do you know all this stuff? I know all this stuff because I read all this stuff. That should probably, we could, be, we, we could probably make that a tagline. I just came up with that one. Hashtag radio skills. Uh, but anyway, you know, when you move around, you, you learn things. I moved a one-bedroom apartment. This is, good, this is good for like pre-Labor Day stuff. I moved a one-bedroom apartment by myself from, New York, uh, from D.C. to New York, drove the truck, the whole thing, just by myself. I loaded up the truck. I didn't have much stuff. I just had a little dolly and drove it all up. And then I, I got to New York, and then I realized that I couldn't move my stuff into the apartment because I had missed the window. And then I had my stuff in a truck, and I couldn't leave the truck on the street. And I mean, it just, I have had so much, so much anxiety and drama and irritation from having to constantly be mobile uh, to, to, for different jobs I've had to move around, for obviously CIA I've had to move around, um, that... You know, after a while, you kind of get, you just get into a mindset where you're like, whatever rolls my way, I'm going to deal with it. But so this time around, I, I was looking for apartments in New York. 
And my there there are a few things I'll, I'll tell you this I I hate whistling like the sound of whistling I understand it makes me it makes me irrationally mad I I just someone if someone's walking down the street and I understand that you're allowed to walk down the street and whistle I mean you probably ask yourself why can't you just be quiet with your thoughts but you know if you want to whistle you can whistle if you're in an enclosed space and somebody has to hear your whistling and can't get away that that's slightly different for me but I understand this is, I just hate it. And I think there's actually a medical condition that I probably, there is a condition, I think I suffer from it, where whistling is like the equivalent of a dog. You know, dog whistle is not a pleasant thing for dogs. Human whistling for me is like a dog whistle. I don't I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I, I find it pretty irritating. But so I, I've had the experience before of looking for apartments in New York. I, I found one when I was living in a tiny, it was under, I think it was 450 square feet. That was the apartment I lived in. This was only maybe four years ago. So, yes, I am not living in the uh, in like a, a Fox News anchor mansion. You know what I'm saying? I'm living a little. So I'm living in this tiny space. And it was cute. That was my own space, my own place. I figured it's going to be fine. And, you know, I actually didn't have a TV there for the first year I lived there, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and I hadn't had a TV before that for a number of years. But every night there would be truck deliveries for a major department store that was on the same block. And so every night I could, and and just the way that the buildings magnified the sound, you could hear these, is it a 16 wheeler or an 18 wheeler? Do they have both of those? I don't know. Which, which is the big truck? 18 wheeler, 18 wheeler. I mean, I guess it's a 16 wheeler if you lose a couple, right? But okay. 18 wheeler, whatever kind of wheeler, the big truck. And the big truck would drive down, and I would, I would say to myself, and of course I'm there, I'm reading Edmund Burke late at night, as one does. I'm reading, you know, re- Reflections on the Revolution in France. I'm taking notes so I can come here and talk to Team Buck about it. I got all kinds of stuff like that going on. Okay, fine. And and then they would have the, even though it would be dead quiet, 3 o'clock in the morning, those trucks would back up, and you'd have the beep, beep, Beep noise, which is why I hate that noise so much. I mean, I was traumatized by that noise. It would wake me up in the middle of the night. It was, it was maddening. And, you know, I was like paying half of the money I was making in rent to live in this tiny shoebox in Manhattan with a beeping truck noise. And I lived there for three years. So I just learned to deal with it. So anyway, I'm moving to a new place now. And I'm, and I'm, I'm all ha- I'm so excited to be in New York, so excited to be back with my friends and my family and everything. And, and I know for all of the flaws... I love this. I love this town. I mean, it's it's a mess. It's crazy. It, it will sometimes almost break you. I must break you. Mark, has New York ever almost broke you? Almost every day. Almost every day, right? I mean, the stuff that you deal with just being on the subway here. A lot of people would be like, I can't I can't handle it. I can't handle it. You know, I mean, I've seen some wild I've seen some wild stuff go on in the subway. That is for sure. I have seen people uh, using a rather crowded subway car as a toilet. Um, I, I've seen some pretty wild, you know, and you can't go anywhere because the subway car is moving. Uh, so I've seen some pretty wild stuff. But I like this town, and maybe I'm just used to the craziest stuff and everything else, but I, I find this apartment, and uh, I find this uh, this place to live. And I may be telling you guys more about this because I'm, I'm hoping that they're going to help me out. But otherwise, this is going to be a recurring theme on the show, and I'll give you more information, which would be Buck versus the building that refuses to address the problem. Buck versus the the building management that's decided like tough for you, 
And and then we're going to have a whole. Then it's going to be a whole thing. Then we're going to have whole conversations here on the show and, and elsewhere about what's going on here. So so here's what I've learned. Uh, you can be actually pretty high up in a building, but if there's a building nearby, you can be subject to their machinery noise. Right? So I come to my new my, my apartment and I think I'd seen it before. I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. It looks really nice and. You know, I'm spending way too much money for me on it, right? Which is a, as a percentage of income, I'm doing what you should tell your kids: don't do, don't spend that much of your money on an apartment. And sure enough, I walk in, and, and what do I, what do I hear? I, because I, I, I know this sound as a New Yorker too. I hear the high pitched screech of an HVAC machine that is a industrial size, right? It's for an entire building. And I look down, and on the building right next to me, there's this HVAC. That's it's making this this noise, and you can hear it. If you open the window, then it's out. You might as well be in the machinery room. I mean, I can hear this noise, and it's just one of these moments where you realize I, I, the noise wasn't there when I saw the apartment. No idea. It turns out that it's it's obviously cyclical, and they only turned. It's only been an issue. It must have been an issue recently. It's a me- mechanical problem. I actually, in true New York fashion, I was riding on a uh, subway car, and there are two guys standing there. Who look like union members of two, four, seven, five local, you know, steel workers union or whatever. And, you know, they, they look like, you know, good, good American industrial working kind of folk. And I said, you guys have HVAC shirts on. I said, listen, my problem, what's going on? They said, oh, yeah, it can be fixed. It can be fixed. It's a it's either a motor or a belt in the cooling tower of the building HVAC unit. So I go and I and I go back and I go, all right, well, now I finally got some I finally got some information here. It just so happened these guys were willing to give share a little bit of their expertise. I told them the problem were on the subway. Very New York story. You know, I'm, I'm learning about industrial machinery or commercial machinery, exhaust systems, because I'm on a subway and it just happened to be next to a couple of guys that that's what they do for a living. Uh, based on the T-shirts they were wearing, it said, you know, HVAC specialist, blah, blah, blah. And I go to the building and they go, oh, yeah, we'll take care of it. And then, then they, they go next door. I mean, at first they say, does the noise really bother you? And, and the, I mean, the answer is obviously yes. Right? Like that's, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't come in to this office of this big building in New York and say, hey, I got a real problem here. I got noise. The answer is obviously yes. But they, they like to do the whole, like, are you sure? And they keep, producer Mark, this is my favorite, they keep sending up people as if, as if I'm crazy and you know what happens when they come up? They go, oh, yeah, that is pretty loud. <laughs> that, is, that is pretty annoying. Oh, you don't say. You don't say. Oh, we're, so I'm not actually hearing? Like, how, we've set up four different people. I mean, look, how many of you have to come up? Do, do you just not believe? Do you think that I like wasting my time, like walking into a leasing office and having this discussion with you? Do you think I, I like saying I like being this new tenant, this new resident in this uh this new residential tower, who's the guy? You know, I'm not complaining about the croissant in the uh, breakfast buffet being stale. I can hear a noise in my apartment building that I do not want, you know, in my apartment, rather, that I do not want to hear. So we shall see. It is a quick fix if they're willing to fix it. It is something that they could absolutely do if they want to do it. The question is going to be, do they want to do anything about it? Do they want to help? 
Um, it's uh, going to be interesting because the HVAC guys also told me because you know we we became buddies on the train that buildings you know it, it, as far as they're concerned it's like the noise if it only affects a few tenants which I'm of course one of the few that's affected by it you know they'd rather like wait and not spend the money until it breaks basically because the screeching means that the machinery is wearing and but they'd rather wait till it just totally breaks and then they'll fix it that seems to be the the approach of of these big buildings now for those of you who don't know I mean in New York I'm talking about the building I live in is you know 40 or 50 stories the building next to me is 20 or 30 stories I mean we're talking about big big machinery big buildings and it, but it just goes to show you i've lived in new york my whole life i know apartments here backwards and forwards i know what to look for i know red flags the moment that you're stepping into the unknown you are rolling the dice and uh right now the buckster on the apartment front is, is getting snake eyes isn't that snake eyes is bad right when you get a snake eyes in the uh, when rolling dice is yes, that right mark that is yeah, yeah that's what i thought i don't really roll dice much I think that gamble. I think that I gamble every day in life. People like to gamble for fun. I'm always like, I feel like I'm gambling when I take a, a walk on the street, see some wild stuff happening here. It's a crazy times. So, so we'll see. I mean, team. I'll, I'll hopefully I'll have uh, I'll have some updates for you. I'm I'm hoping that you know we're gonna go into this weekend. I'm sure they're gonna say they can't fix anything. Holiday weekend, blah blah. I'm hoping next week we get it resolved. Otherwise, I don't know. The Buckster might be looking for a, a, a new place to live in New York pretty soon. After living, after moving once in, uh, you know, I might have to move again. So that's that's the. If you like where you live, this the, the lesson here is: if you like where you live, do not move <laughs> unless unless you absolutely have to. If you are happy with your living situation, and I already knew this, but I, I wanted to move from DC to New York, and I'm happy with that change for sure. We got the Freedom Hub NYC. We're going to start streaming the show probably now in October. We're having a little bit of a construction delay on the studio, but it's going to happen. Um, but I had to switch from an apartment in D.C. that I love to an apartment in New York that's a nightmare. It reminds me of when, just just a, a quick story, I, I signed a, and I, I was convinced by a friend to do this. I didn't want to do it. I signed on a uh, lease in a house in D.C., and the deal was that I was going to be living in the what they call the English basement, which is a fancy way of saying basement. That's right. It's a basement, but they call them English basements because they're somewhat ground level in D.C. or whatever it is they say. And and I remember I saw and that apart that house had been empty for six months. I would drive because I would drive past it every day on the way home from work for six months. That house had been totally empty. And they told me that if you're in the basement and no one's above you, you can you can just use the whole house. So, and I thought, okay, and my rent was going to be a thousand dollars a month. So I'm going to be living in Washington D.C. in a basement apartment for a thousand dollars a month, and have access to the whole house basically, and do whatever I want. I had a yard, and you know, I was like, this is great. And this guy totally it was a friend of mine. Totally swindled me into this because as soon as I, it was actually the day after I moved in. I'm the day after I moved into this house. It had been empty for six months. There was an enormous moving truck out front and a family of five moved in upstairs. And I'm telling you, I went through nine months before I finally just threw in the towel of it was like, you know, Captain Kangaroo upstairs, man. I mean, it was just, you know, kids running around screaming. I could hear little toys on the floor. You know, it was just a total. Oh, man. I, you know what, team? I, I got to move to one of the rural areas of America is what I realized. I just can't. I can't deal with the noise. 
So we're going to have to do a – it can't happen right away because I just got here. We're going to have to do like a Team Buck sweepstakes. Where is Buck going to head to? Where, where is he going to decide that it's time to time to roll to? So, team, that's what that's what I've got in mind here. We're going to have to find a new new spot for the Buckster. All right, got to hit a quick break. I'll come right back. Man, it, man it's unusual for me to uh, get into a bunch of personal stuff here. But I will say on the upside of New York City, there's a lot of – Good stuff that happens here. A lot of people to uh, grab lunch with, grab a lot, a lot of restaurants everywhere. Fun stuff for sure. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I wanted to give you a quick update. Yeah, I mentioned the streaming. We are going to be streaming the Buck Sexton show. Uh, I'm going to know exactly the time. It's going to be earlier in the day than, uh, than the radio show is right now. And it'll be streamed. And I uh, think we'll be starting that the first or second week of October, we're just waiting for a studio construction and also a few uh, big name folks that you know to get their stuff finalized. We're in the final stages of getting some people signed on as well. So we'll have a whole streaming lineup that you will be able to watch at your uh, at your leisure. That's the plan. So it'll be in October. I came up here thinking it would be in, in September, but it looks like it's going to be in October. We're going to have a whole streaming network of shows and i'm going to be one of those shows so the whole the, the entirety of the buck sexton show will be available as a visual as a video product starting very soon so and it will be well i, I can't name the platform quite yet but it's gonna be very fun i promise you that we'll be right back team buck it's time for roll call Roll call, everybody. We're going to do a double roll call today. Why? Because it's late in summer and I feel like it. That's why. I think I think that should be. Hopefully that's a good enough reason. Hopefully we're all on board for that as the reason. The reason is I feel like it. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. That's how you send it to me and that's how we roll. And we start off with my friend Tim. Buck, love the show. Just enjoyed Mezcal. Some people say Mezcal. I guess that's the fancy way. Just enjoyed Mezcal for the first time. Love that smoky flavor. Is there a brand you recommend? Is there a specific cocktail or a homemade concoction that you recommend? Going to pick up a bottle to enjoy over the weekend. Thank you for all the insight and entertainment, brother. Tim, I wish I could give you more... Worthwhile information on Mezcal. I wish I could tell you that there's something uh, that I could give you the brand. I don't know. I just get whatever. Uh, Illegal is, I think, the most well-known Mezcal. So I could start with that. But usually they only have one or two at a bar, and I like it so much that I'm just like, whatever Mezcal you have, I will drink. And that is usually how we do it. That's usually how we roll. Benny! Benny and the Jets. Hey, Buck, today I write with a, oh, man, a heavy heart. I am a 25-year vet, and I raise my 8- and 6-year-old boys to respect all law enforcement and first responders. But today, with the release of the IG report on Comey, that ends, and it pains me greatly. There is obviously a two-tiered justice system, and I'll teach my boys to say to any law enforcement official, I will not make any statement, and I want to speak to a lawyer. The standard is if you lie to the FBI, even making an innocent mistake, 
you are prosecuted, i.e. Flynn, Papadopoulos, or E.G., Flynn and Papadopoulos, Stone, Manafort, etc. But if you are a Dem, you get a pass. Clapper, Clinton, Comey, Lerner. Where is the freaking justice? The FBI and the Department of Justice have proven they operate without integrity and with a political bias. Shields high, Benny in Mississippi. Well, thank you for uh, saying it exactly right. There is an enormous double standard in our justice system. I think that part is abundantly clear. There are, what do we say about this? What do we do about the fact that we cannot trust the FBI anymore? Now you'd say, oh, Bach, but they might. yeah, we, we can trust them to put away, you know, drug dealers and kidnappers and terrorists, but the moment that there is a political connection to a case, the normal assumption must be, it has to be, that they are um, going to give the benefit of the doubt to the Democrat and they're going to crush the Republican, because that's what we keep seeing. And if we ignore what we know to be true, what comes after that? What's next after that? Caroline writes, hey, Buck, I want to thank you for staying on the Jeffrey Epstein story. Seems to have dropped off the radar for most news outlets, and that's a shame because it's a hugely important story. It isn't just a salacious ogling and the predation of an extremely rich weirdo. As you point out, this may be an international blackmail ring operating with the knowledge and implicit consent of our intelligence community. Having experience inside the swamp, you offer your listeners a valuable and unique insight into this highly disturbing story. Keep up the great work as always. Shields high. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Carolyn. And yeah, I I think, look, my record speaks for itself on this one. I was very uh, concerned about what was going to happen with the Epstein case from the beginning. And I knew that this was going to turn into a moment where we would at a minimum have to question because remember even before the investigation that it took so long for us to get here that there was so clearly an effort to suppress uh, information within the DOJ within the prosecutor's office in Palm Beach there were people who just did not want to deal with this they did not want to make a case of this and you have to remember, it's it's usually the opposite. You know, if you tell most prosecutors that they're going to have a chance to bring down a billionaire pedophile who was a serial trafficker of women, you'd think that most prosecutors would leap at that opportunity. Meanwhile, what we see are prosecutors leaping at opportunities like prosecuting Papadopoulos, prosecuting not even just the, the recent cases with Russia collusion. I insist on pointing out to everyone that we've had a number of very high profile Republicans who were just harassed, who were utterly and completely hounded. And it was because of their politics. That's what was going on. It was because they were targets of the prosecutor's office as a result of what was going on in their lives, as a result of the politics around them. Right. That That's what's really happening here. I mean, uh, you see this with um, Scott Walker in Wisconsin. They had prosecutors desperately trying to take him down. Saw this with Chris Christie and Bridgegate. You saw even calling it Bridgegate. They caused the, they caused some traffic. I mean, it, it's it's something that happens all the time. I remember when that originally went down. MSNBC was trying to make it seem like there should be 
murder charges, perhaps, if there was anybody on that bridge on the way to a hospital as a result of traffic. I mean, you know, this is this is where it was going. That that was how extreme Rachel Maddow, I think it was on the Bill Maher show, referred to the Bridgegate scandal as the most delicious political scandal of her lifetime, as though this was such a fascinating or important or worthwhile story to begin with. Uh, Rick Perry in Texas, they went after Rick Perry. You know, they decided that they were going to uh, try to prosecute him for misuse of his position because he did not want someone who was in the prosecutor's office who had just been arrested for drunk driving. And so as governor, he said that he was going to veto funding for that office unless they got rid of the drunk driving prosecutor. And then you had another prosecutor in the state say, oh, maybe we're going to bring bring charges against Rick Perry. I mean, this is it keeps. When does this happen to Democrats? I'm sure there are Democrats out there say, well, look at Hillary. They, yeah, well, Hillary broke the law a lot. And if you believe the recent uh, CEO of Overstock, what he what he's had to say about this, she broke the law a lot more than people have even realized. When is enough enough? When when do we see that the mentality of the liberals, the mentality of the left in this country is such that their side should always be treated differently and better? That to be a liberal isn't just to be a better person, but to demand better treatment by the government. To demand that your team, so to speak, is always going to be in a position of strength vis-a-vis the other, other because the party that supports the government is now the party of the government. People inside, people in the bureaucracy use their power to try, not the elected officials, I'm talking about the bureaucrats, they try to crush the opposition, they try to crush the other side. That's what's going on. And we see it happening. Adam writes, Buck, on the Twilight Zone, it was pre-Star Trek William Shatner, and the only other movie was Cat's Eye. I love James Woods in that movie, Shields High. I didn't even realize James Woods was in that movie. I, By the way, I miss James Woods' Twitter. Why did he get kicked off of Twitter? Funny story about James Woods. My grandmother on my mother's side was this very, uh, very elegant, uh, very wonderful woman who was an actress and did a bit of modeling and and she did a play. It was, I think, a company theater or, or you know, a neighborhood theater thing. But she did a play. And it was must have been 40. Oh, no, maybe 30 years ago now. Something like that. Maybe 30 years ago. And I knew that she had referred in the past to my friend Jimmy Woods. And my grandmother had said my friend Jimmy Woods. And I always thought that was kind of a funny thing because I'd seen him in, in a bunch of different movies, you know, Casino and some other movie where he's playing a cop and I can't remember what it's called, but I'd seen him in a bunch of movies. Um, and I t- tweeted at him about it once and he wrote that my grandmother, Jean, was a lovely woman with excellent taste because she said he was smart. And I thought that was very nice. It was very big of him and that, and that he, he clearly did remember her based on our exchange. So I, I like James Woods. I miss uh, seeing his tweets. I mean, his tweets were fire. James Woods' tweets were not to, uh, not for the faint of heart, that's for sure. Uh, let's see what we got here. Taft writes, I've been serving in the military now for six years in a combat arms unit. And in the last year, we have received the first two females in our unit ever. Neither of them have passed a single PT test since being with us 
when we do our combat fitness assessments. They both complete last with terrible scores. It's not a sexism thing. It's a biology thing. I know a few females who can and do knock PT tests and CFAs out of the water, but they are the exceptions. Lives are more important than feelings. Well, Taft, I, as a civilian, would obviously agree with this assessment, and I know plenty of other guys in the military uh, like you who agree with this assessment, and I just wonder at what point at what point it's too much, at what point we all can agree and understand that there are lives that are going to be put at risk for this. It does remind me at some level of when people, you know, there's all this talk about pushing pushing people forward in education, oh, we need more diversity, we need to do this, that. But when you start talking about cardiothoracic surgery, for example, you start talking about more elite medical professions, then all of a sudden the whole, oh, well, for the good of for the good of diversity, we're going to change the standards. People start to have questions about this. I remember Ward Connolly, who was very involved in getting rid of racial admissions preferences in California. California state system got rid of racial preferences. And guess what? The school system is, is doing fine. And you still have all, all different people of all different backgrounds going to university, state school in California. It just means that you have at UCLA, for example, a very heavy Asian-American population. That's really been the main change. Uh, and those students have earned it. But there are places where you finally realize that the social justice tinkering is just too much. It's just too much. And. When you start talking about forward deployed combat units, I hope we I hope everyone can agree that that's where it shouldn't matter. The social justice component should not matter anymore. It should just be about what is best for defeating the enemy. That's what matters. All right. We got more roll call coming up, team. All right. Roll call continues here. Let's see. We got TJ. It's Buck. Everyone's giving Obama a hard time for purchasing that new beach house at Martha's Vineyard. But I think it was pretty strategic on his part. Hear me out. Think about it. What will motivate leftists more to fight climate change than being able to save the Chosen One's mansion from being destroyed by the rising sea level? They'll do whatever it takes to keep the Obamas from being flooded out, even if that means passing a fully socialized Green New Deal for the country. Yes, sarcasm was intended. Um, I see what you're saying, TJ. You're, You're a clever fellow and you're a good friend of the show. So uh, thank you so much for writing in your humorous content. <laughs> I'll say that. Thanks, TJ. Uh, TJ, you're the man. TJ's the man. I think he's wearing, I, I can't really see it, but I think, he, yep, no, he's wearing a Shields High t-shirt in his avatar. TJ, that means I love you forever. That's what that means. You're my brother from another mother. Chris writes in, hey, Buck, thanks for answering my question regarding gun ownership. And if there's a home protection class that I can take. If you do plan on going to that class in the fall, the sheepdog class, let us know. My mom and I are so down to drive from San Diego to take it with you and everyone else from Team Buck. Thanks. Well, Chris, thank you, my man. I'm definitely um, trying to get down there. I mean, the thing is right now I've already got on the books. i got to get out to Vegas for the Stansbury Research Conference. Those of you that know what Stansbury Research is, uh, you should definitely come out to that conference. It's October... Oh gosh, am I uh, am I forgetting the dates? I'm having I'm having a Joe Biden moment here. It is the seventh to the ninth is the Stansbury, or maybe no, the eighth and the ninth. But I'm going to be out there the seventh. 
uh, of October. So I've got to go out there. And then I think I'm going to Nashville later on in October for an event. So I might get to see some folks in Nashville. And you know, I don't know. Then I might just have to go to some other country and defeat the terrorists. I'm very busy. I'm very busy with all these things. That said, I would love to get down to Austin. KLBJ Austin in the house and uh, try to hang out with all the Team Buck Austin folks and do some cool shooting of guns and things like that with Tim Kennedy, who, you know, if you're going to get trained by somebody or, you know, you're going to have somebody try to save your butt either in a firefight or a bar fight, I do think you want it to be Tim Kennedy. I think that's I think that's real. Uh, Steve writes, I get tired about AOC and others talking about climate change, that the glaciers are melting and sea levels rising all a lie. Glaciers displace water, and when they melt, the water level doesn't rise. It stays right where it was. Do this test. Take a glass and put some ice cubes in it, then fill with water to a line. Mark it on the cup. Wait for the ice to melt. The water will be at the same line. As the ice melts, it it displaces less water. It's plain science. Uh, Okay. Well, I I think that... Wait, glaciers displace water. When they melt, the water level doesn't rise. Um, I think you might have. I think you might have a point here. <laughs> does that does that sound feasible, Mark? I'm trying to think about like last time I got in a bathtub. How does that work? I haven't taken a bath in 15 years, so I'm what? not sure. A bath is a luxurious experience, my friend. Don't don't forget about what that's like. You know, what I mean, you put out some candles, you put on some Kenny G. I don't know if you've watched Scrubs, but you sound like John Dorian right now. Kenny G, <laughs> just get in that tub, get in that tub with Kenny G and some scented, obviously scented candles. I mean, you're not going, if you don't have the aromatics, are you really getting the full benefit of the tub experience? Although I will say in my life, I've, I've lived in apartments where we didn't even have a tub. So that's a thing. Yeah. Did you, did, so you do you have a tub now? I do. I don't think I'd ever want to take a bath. This ever. reminds me of the Seinfeld where they say that if you're taking a bath, it's like you're lying in your own filth. I yes, know, I don't it know. It really is. I don't know if that's really true or not. You know, I I think uh, maybe maybe not. I mean, we'll think see. about it. You're closing the drain. Where is the filth going? Into well, the water. Yes, but it, yeah, no. That's I mean, but is, there's a lot of water. I mean, if you ever swim in a public pool, you didn't want to know what goes on in there. I've never swam in a public pool. Wow, you're one of those. Yeah, huh? you're very yes. hygienic. I am. I'm a germaphobe. Hygiene interested fellow. That's There's good. a bottle of hand sanitizer in my pocket. That's at all good because when we move to the other studio, we're going to be like a very close proximity, producer Mark. That's so a good that's point. Exciting. There's going to be no glass between us. That's right. The video studio, everybody. Oh, that's a little preview of what's to come, but maybe we'll talk more about that tomorrow because for right now, I got to close up shop. Shield high.